Please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we will read together verses 9 through 21. For those of you who have been waiting for nearly five years for something to do, brace yourselves, brace yourselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us. We need your help. We need for you to come and work uh, deeply into our hearts. Speak to us from your word. Instruct us. Grant us your spirit that word and spirit might come together so that this transformational thing, this metamorphosis might continue in each of our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. You may be seated. On uh, November 7th, 2000, two things happened, among all kinds of other things, but two things occurred. One, we elected a new president, and we didn't know for several weeks who he would be. That was significant. And a whole lot of people obviously knew about that and remember that. But here's a second significant thing that occurred on Tuesday, November 7th, 2000. I got out of bed. And the reason that was significant is because two days before, on November 5th, I started and finished the New York City Marathon. Whoa. 
and you thought you knew me. Started and finished the New York City Marathon, 26.2 miles. Now, I've got, I've got a ton of memories from the four hours and 50 minutes that it took me to plod through the streets of the five boroughs of New York City. But here is my most vivid memory. At about mile 15, somewhere in Queens, as I'm contemplating that I have 11 more miles to go, I hear a commotion behind me. It's just, it's just initially a noise. I hear this commotion, but then it becomes distinct, and it's a voice. And the voice says this, make way, blind runner. Make way, blind runner. And in just a matter of seconds, two runners passed me, tethered to each other, tethered to each other. The sightless runner connected to, united to, the sighted runner, enabling the sightless runner to see and to be able to run this marathon. Now, analogies break down. They all break down at some point. But let me, let me ask you this. Do you think there was ever a moment, do you suppose there was ever a moment when that sightless runner said to the sighted runner, I've got this. I've got this. I can do this. I'm on my own. I don't need you anymore. Do you suppose that moment ever came? I don't think so. I don't think so. As I said, analogies break down, but let me suggest to you that when we come to verses 9 through 21 of Romans 12 and what follows in chapters 13 through 15, we are like running a marathon. We find ourselves in something mind-numbing, daunting, overwhelming to contemplate. You can't read these verses reflectively, contemptively, contemplatively, carefully, and seeking to apply them without realizing how high the standard is to which Christ calls us. I mean, this is daunting and in a sense overwhelming. The bar is set very, very high And there is simply no conceivable way for you to contemplate running this marathon, living this Christian life apart from the enabling, sustaining, empowering grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
Which is why, as we make our way through these verses, I will be taking you back again and again and again to verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, never losing sight of the mercies of God, never losing sight of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the only reasonable thing that you should do. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, demonstrate, put on display what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It would be an extraordinary mistake to work our way through the rest of chapter 12 and then chapter 13 and, that cha- and then chapter 14 and disconnect these calls, these summons, these demands that we find here from the enabling, sustaining, transforming power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That would be cruel. That would be cruel. And one of two things would happen if we were to do that. The really strong among you would become proud and arrogant, and that would be a handful. And the rest of us would be crushed crushed. There's no conceivable way for you to say to Jesus, I've got this. I don't need you anymore. So we will constantly come back to these first two verses being admonished that we go on presenting ourselves to Jesus that we go on presenting ourselves to Jesus so that he might transform us by the power of his own grace and mercy. The key to living the Christian life is your union with Christ. The key to living the Christian life is your union with Christ in this moment, in the next moment, and in the next. And what you need, what I need, in moment after moment after moment is grace, grace, and more grace, enabling, restorative, transformative grace. So as we come to these verses, I want us to see three things. And I want us to see these things always connected to those first two verses. But as we come to verses 9 through 21, let's see these three things. One, just a reminder from last week, and then two more. First, the nature of the church, and then the mark of the church, And then the characteristics of the mark of the church. The specific characteristics of the mark of the church. The nature of the church, the mark of the church, and the characteristics of the mark of the church. What is the nature of the church? What do we mean? Well, we mean this. What are we talking about? We're talking about this. That in the midst of all of the diversity that there is here, and in the midst of all of the diversity that there is beyond these walls encompassing and taking in the hundreds of thousands and millions of Christians that exist worldwide. Just before the service started, Melinda and I were praying, and I was reminded as we were praying that hours ago, before you were awake, before I was awake, hours and hours and hours ago, a great wave began to sweep across the face of this globe as God roused people from their slumbers in different time zones on the other side of the world and began to gather them together for worship. And that wave of worship, which continued hours ago, continues to this very moment and will continue after we have closed this service. 
and after we've gone to sleep tonight. And in the midst of all of that diversity, all of those different ethnicities, all of those different cultural expressions, there is a unity. That's the nature of the church. It isn't something that, in one sense, we strive for. Paul says in Ephesians 4, the first couple of verses, that we strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We strive to maintain something. We don't strive to achieve something because Christ has achieved it. Christ has effected a real unity. E pluribus unum. It's on your money. Out of the one, out of the many, one. From the many, one. That is true of the church. That's what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. So we, though many, are one body, united And members of one another, this is the reminder from last week, we can't lose sight of it. And folks, let me say this again, we can't lose sight of it, most especially as we are in the midst of a transition. Let let me just suggest to you that this is one of those points in, in the life of a church, and we have enjoyed, and I trust will continue to enjoy, a delightful unity a peace in the life of this church. But let me just suggest to you that in the midst of transitions like this, this can be be the time, this can be a point at which the devil would love to insinuate himself and cause difficulty. And here is where we've got to hear Paul in Ephesians 4. Strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are members one of another. We belong to one another. We are the body. And all of the elements, all of the organs, all of the extremities, all of the systems of the body need one another, depend upon one another. We are not the head. Jesus is the head. And each of us is united to Jesus. And by virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of the fact that you are connected to Jesus, as I said last week, you are connected to one another. You belong to one another by virtue of the fact that you belong to Jesus. Stunning what Paul says, isn't it? In the first encounter that he has, or it's stunning what Jesus says to Paul in Paul's first encounter with Jesus. Acts 9, verse 4, as Paul is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, he has signed arrest warrants. He's on his way to take children away from parents and wives away from husbands and dads away from their kids. And he doesn't care, he doesn't care that he's going to inflict deep and profound woe upon those whom he's seeking. And what does Jesus say to Paul when Jesus knocks him off his horse and leaves him on the ground? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me, me, not why are you persecuting my disciples, not why are you persecuting my church, not why are you persecuting my followers. 
Do you see how inextricably connected Jesus is to his people and his people are to him? They are united to one another and by virtue of that union with him, they are united to each other. It's the basis upon which Paul can say what he says. In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's because of this union that when somebody knows real rejoicing, real joy has some real occasion before God to celebrate, Jesus joins the party and he invites all of his people to join the party with him. He rejoices over those things which cause our rejoicing. He delights in those things which cause us delight. And at the other end of the spectrum, when there is loss, when there is heartbreak, when there is sadness and grief, you are not alone in it. There is another who weeps, and that one is Jesus. And the rest of us are called to share in that grief. I am not my own. I do not belong to myself. I belong to Jesus And you are not your own, and you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus, and you belong to one another. And the second thing flows inevitably out of that first, out of that true unity that is there. You ask, if we're to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, how are we to do that? How are we to do that? Well, the second thing, the mark of the church. What is the mark of the church? It is love. It is love. Verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. It's like a, it's like a heading for everything that follows. It's, like it's sort of a chapter title for this particular section. Love. Love one another. Some of the translations have let love be without hypocrisy. And that's a good translation because the word in the text is the word from which we get our word, hypocrisy. And if you know something about that word, you'll know that that word was used to describe actors in plays who would put on masks to veil their true character, presenting another character. That's what a hypocrite is. A person who puts on a mask who makes a pretense of being one thing, when in fact, he or she is entirely another thing. Let love be without hypocrisy, without acting. That's why the renderings are, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Now you come to these verses, um, and you come, interestingly, to three different words for the word love. And the first of them is this great and very large word. And you know what it is, don't you? You've heard it, I suspect. Agape. Agape. We only have one word in our language for the word love. And it's the word love. (laughs) When we use the word love, it has to serve all kinds of different functions, doesn't it? It has to be used 
in all kinds of different ways, this one word, and it's the context that determines for us what it is that we mean when we use the word love. Right? If I say, I love pizza, or I love Mendelssohn, or I love my wife, you know that I love these objects of affection differently. I mean, it would be a horrific thing if I loved my dog in the same way that I love my wife. Or if I loved pizza or even Mendelssohn. That, that would not be a good thing. So we have one word in the context will tell us what the word means in that context. Well, here's where the original language is a great help. It's a great help. Paul uses this very, very large word, agape, and it is the word that describes this free, unconditional, forgiving, embracing love. This love to which is attached no asterisk, no footnote. I love you. Check the footnote and look at the bottom of the page for the exceptions. Check the asterisk to look at the bottom of page for the exceptions. Now this is a love which is all-encompassing, unconditional, utterly free, that requires nothing from the object loved. You want a definition of love? Let these verses, let these verses wash over you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love. Yet, nada, nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It's a pretty staggering thing to stare into the face of, isn't it? That definition of love. Do you want an illustration of this kind of love? An illustration of this kind of love? This love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A love that never fails. Let me direct you to a couple of verses in the first chapter of Acts. Verses, well, actually just one verse, 14. No, 13 and 14. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John. 
and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now you ask, what's so arresting about that? Well, think about the parenthesis that is created by the first and the last names, Peter and Mary, together in the same room. Right? You know how it works in the church. Someone gets offended by somebody, they walk into the room, they say, I'm not sitting on that side of the room. I'm not sitting on that side of the room. In fact, I may not even sit in this building. Do you suppose Mary had any legitimate objection for being in the same room with Peter? Do you suppose Mary, whose son had been brutally murdered just about seven weeks before, who had been betrayed publicly, publicly by Peter, Peter, who, when on the third occasion of his denial and denunciation of Jesus, actually cursed himself, said, in effect, may God judge me and condemn me and damn me if I am not telling the truth. I do not know the man. You want to know how big agape is? It's that big. Peter and Mary in the same room, praying together praying together. This is not the subject of the sermon this morning, but you ask, what is it that could produce that sort of reconciliation between two people who could most certainly and legitimately at the human level be estranged from one another? The only thing is the power and the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his living again. And this is actually before Pentecost. This is before the Spirit gets dumped on the church. The enabling, empowering, transforming Spirit who comes in larger measure at Pentecost. Peter and Mary in the same room. Folks, this is a love that will stop you in its tracks. This is not a cheesy, quiver-in-the-liver kind of thing. You feel the weight of this? Do you feel the need to stay tethered to Jesus? Do you feel the need for the grace that you need from Jesus in order to love in this way? And then there are a couple of other words. They're actually both found in the word love one another in verse 10 with brotherly affection. Love one another actually combines these two words, philos, phileo, and storge. They're, they're there together, they're joined. Philos and storge. Storge is the love that a parent feels, knows for a child, that a grandparent knows for a grandchild, that a mother most especially knows when her child is born and she cradles that child in her arms. I was with a couple of friends, a bunch of friends this last week, one of them Brian Salter and his wife Kendra just had their fourth child. 
Well, she had the child. Forgive me, ladies. She had the child. And in all four of her pregnancies, she was sick from day one. Sick, heaving, that awful, horrific thing that some of you have probably experienced. And Brian sat across the lunch table from me and he looked at me and he said, and when that baby was born, the sickness was gone. Immediately. And she held that little boy in her arms and looked up at her husband and in effect said what Robert Redford said at the end of the film Jeremiah Johnson. When the wise old mountain man called out to the pilgrim and said, Pilgrim, was it worth the trouble? And Jeremiah Johnson said, Trouble? What trouble? Kendra looked up at her husband and inasmuch said that those nine months disappear because of the deep affection that this mom had, as moms always do for their newborn babies. And then there is phileo, philos, this love of friendship. And these two words are woven together in a kind of a tapestry of love together with this great big word, agape. You see what we're being called to? We're being called to the same kind of tender, loving affection that a mother feels for her newborn child in the context of this great, big, agape love where there are no conditions attached, nothing you have to do to earn my love, my affection. And then woven into that tapestry is this friendship dimension. The kind of thing that people who have been friends for 20 or 30 or 40 years know. I have a couple of friends like that. If anything happened to me, I know that that they would be on the next plane to see what they could do to help Barb because they are my friends and they love me. There is a friend, the proverb says, that sticks closer than a brother. Do you see what we're being called to? This love, this mark of the church? Jesus said, this, this is the thing. It is this thing. It is this mark by which all men will know that you're my disciples. Now look, you know me. I trust. I trust you know me. We're plowing through Romans, folks. You know that thinking right having right understandings of who Jesus is and what he has done, articulating as best, though though clearly and perfectly as we can, what the grace of God is for us in Jesus Christ. You know that that matters to me. That's doctrine. That matters. Right? You know if you've been around here for very long that there is a kind of a middle element between our minds and our wills that matters very, very greatly to me, and that is our hearts, our affections, that we get our affections rightly aligned so that as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts begin to be captivated by this glorious gospel and this immeasurable love which the Father has for the Son and for those whom the Father has given to the Son. And all of this, as we've seen in Romans 12, 1 and 2, gets worked out in the way we live our lives. But what is the thing that marks all of it? Jesus didn't say, by by your doctrine will all men know. 
He didn't say by your ethics will all men know. He didn't even say by your affections, by your rightly ordered affections will all men know. Though you know that all of these things are interwoven and are pieces and parts of this picture, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. If you have this kind of love one for another, love is the mark of the church. And how does it work itself out? It works itself out in specific characteristics. And this is the third thing. And I... And this is killing me. I can't, we can't do this whole thing. I can only highlight a couple of things. Maybe I'll cheat and, and, and come back to this and do a couple more. But listen to some of the things. I'll just encourage you to read the words. You, you, you probably really don't need a bunch of exposition because the words convey an awful lot, don't they? But just look at a couple of these things very quickly. A couple of the characteristics of the mark of the church. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do you know what that means in practical terms? That means I am much more concerned about you being honored in the eyes of one another than I am concerned that I be honored in your eyes. I am much more concerned that you be elevated, that you be acknowledged, than that I am. Now, who does that in this culture? Who does that in a culture like this? This is a culture that's about resumes, isn't it? This is a culture that's about achievement and performance. And who's got the most toys and the biggest toys and And the most padded resume. I mean, it's about achievement, isn't it? It's about drawing attention to myself. But here Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No, this is so counterintuitive, so countercultural. Outdo one another. Labor in behalf of one another to show honor to one another. Where do you see that? I'll tell you one place you see it. You actually see it in the Godhead. Think about it. You actually see it in the Godhead. God is not summoning us to anything that he doesn't already do himself. What does the Father say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who does the Father want to honor? The Son. And what does the Son say? I haven't come to do my will. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. I don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. Now, this is a 30-year-old man who won't do anything without his father's permission. Sounds terribly dysfunctional, doesn't it? Right? We would say that in our culture. A 30-year-old guy who doesn't do anything without his father's permission. But you see what Jesus is doing? He's honoring and exalting the supremacy and the priority of the father. And what does the spirit do? What does the spirit do? The spirit does nothing but draw attention to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And so you have this incredible dynamic in the Godhead, don't you? The Father seeking to honor the Son, the Son seeking to honor the Father, and the Spirit taking great pleasure in honoring the Father and the Son. Where do you see it? Man, you see it in the gospel, folks. You see it in the reality of who God is. Outdo one another in showing honor. Make it about 
the person next to you and the person across the room from you, the person behind you, the person in front of you. Here's another one, verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Hospitality, hospice, and hospital are all related, right? And this business of showing hospitality has all of this Old Testament background that has to do with welcoming the stranger. The elders would sit in the gates of the city and if a stranger came to the city, they would be there to receive the stranger. They don't know him. They don't know where he came, comes from. They don't know what, he's, what his business is. But they're there to welcome the stranger. Go read the law. Read Deuteronomy the second law, and see all of the provision that there is for the widow, the orphan, the alien, the stranger in the land. Right? Look, we, we have a tremendous capacity for welcoming folks in this church. I hear it. I hear it from people, people who visit. I know there are folks who slip through the cracks. I know this. I know that people leave and say, nobody spoke to me. I hate it. I hate that worse than preaching a bad sermon. I really do. But I know that we have a tremendous capacity for welcoming people because people tell me that from Frank and Daryl who have made it their job to stand out there by the doors every week to look for people whom they don't know and whom they suspect to be new. To those of you who do the same thing, not because it's a program and a part of an official thing, but because you do it. And I would say to you, what Paul says to the Thessalonians, excel still more. Keep on keeping on. That's the original. That's the Greek. Excel still more. Keep doing it. But here's the thing to think about. How about this? Here's a thought. How about a meal? When you see the stranger, the newcomer. How about saying to the newcomer, the stranger, hey, how about a meal right now, today, or this week? Come to my home for a meal, right? Hospitality, welcoming the stranger. And if you add the connection, at least in our language, and the root word in the original does convey these sorts of nuances, when you connect the ideas of hospice and hospitality to the stranger who comes in, hospital and hospitality, you see we're welcoming those whom we know to be sick, who are in need of safety. Right? We know who we are. Sin, sick souls in need of a Savior. And everybody who walks through those doors is in the same condition. And they need a home. They need a place of safety. And then here, let's drop down to the end. Verses 20 and 21, the third one, the final one. Again, the words are plain enough. So let me just give you a couple of illustrations. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. couple of quick stories, true stories. There's a pastor in Tanzania who's been at the pastor's conference every year that I've been there until this year. He's ancient. He's about four feet, six inches tall, I swear. He weighs about 32 pounds. When he was a young boy, he was the son of the local cultic priest in his village, the witch doctor, if you will. 
And a missionary came into their area and the father commissioned the son to make an assault on the missionary because the missionary was disrupting things with the gospel. People were, were responding and they were coming to Jesus. And they were getting free of the fear that animistic religion inculcates in people's hearts and souls. And they were getting free and his livelihood was threatened. And so the father commissions his 15-year-old son to make an assault on this missionary to try and kill him. Kill him. So the 15-year-old boy goes to the local bar and gets himself good and liquored up and he finds the missionary and he does make an assault on him. He takes a club and he whacks him a couple of times with the club. It's in a public place and fortunately some people intervened. And then the boy was brought before the village authorities to be prosecuted, to be tried and sentenced. And the missionary was there and he asked the village leaders to spare the boy's life. And they were aghast and astounded. And they said, he made an assault. He tried to kill you. And you want us to spare his life? And he said, yes. And here's why. I am a guilty sinner. And Jesus did not prosecute me. In fact, not only did he not prosecute me, he died in my place. So that the accusations that could rightly be leveled against me became his. And I'm free. Can I do less than what Jesus has done for me? And they let the boy go. And the missionary went to his home. And the next morning, when the missionary woke up, there was the 15-year-old boy in a tree outside his home, having slept in that tree through the night, wanting to know from the missionary more about the Jesus who had set him free. And he embraced Jesus and became a pastor in that denomination, and served Jesus faithfully for over 50 years. Who does that? Who loves in that way? Who heaps good mercy, kindness upon those who have done evil? Jesus did. We're summoned too. And here's the second one. This is a true story too. I have a friend He's an acquaintance, not really a friend. He's an acquaintance who worked with Prison Fellowship. And he went, started going to this particular prison to teach. He's a theologian. He went to this prison to do ministry in the prison. And sitting on the front row was a young boy, 23, 24 years old, and a woman in her 50s. And every time my buddy would go to the prison, they would be sitting there together, and he just assumed that they were mother and son, that the mother was coming to encourage her son as he tried to correct whatever it was that he had done wrong and and tried to grow in his understanding of the gospel. So after one of their sessions, he said something to the the boy and to the mother uh, and said, well, you must be mother and son. And they sort of looked at each other and smiled and said, well, yes, yes, we are in a roundabout sort of way. And then the story came out that the boy had actually murdered her son. And the woman went to the prison to share the gospel with him. And he responded. And then she went home and said to her husband, I think we need to adopt this boy and make him our own. And that is what they did. They adopted the boy who had murdered 
their son. Who? Who does something like that? Jesus does something like that. And that, my friends, is the kind of love that we are summoned to. And that's why I started with the illustration I started with. Don't you sense your desperate need to remain tethered to Jesus, connected to Jesus? Because it is only his grace. It is only his power. It is only his love as we present ourselves to him and as he refashions and restores and remakes us, that that kind of love could become evident. It would cause the world to say, you have got to be kidding. That is really stunning. Let's pray. And let's just, let's just be quiet for a moment. And let's pray, and then I'll pray for myself and for all of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon us all. Help us. We are in need of your help. We're in need of your grace. We're in need of a mercy, a love that we simply do not possess. We get glimpses of it and tastes of it. We give evidences of it from time to time. And I pray that you would be pleased for this love to be more and more in evidence among us. Help us, strengthen us, humble us under your mighty hand so that we might run to you, flee to you, plead with you as we present ourselves to you, that you would transform us by the renewing of the totality of our being, mind and affections and will to the praise of your glorious name and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand.